we're excited to bring you a new season of the Just Admitted podcast. But first, a quick note before we get into the episode. We'll be answering listener questions throughout the season, so please submit any questions for our team of experts to podcast at ivywise.com. Thanks for tuning in. And now for the show. Hi there. Welcome to semester six, episode two of the Ivy Wise Just Admit It podcast, where former deans and directors of admission give expert insight into the complex college admissions landscape. I'm Tasha, your host for this season. I'm an admissions counselor at Ivy Wise and a former international admissions officer at USC. I'm also a former assistant director of international admissions at Boston University. Eric is joining me today. He's a former admissions officer at Columbia University and an Ivy Wise counselor. We're going to hear from him all about Columbia University. What's it all about? What they're looking for in applicants and the application process from the perspective of a former admissions officer. So listen up and remember, if you ever have more questions, you can check out the Ivy Wise knowledge base on our website, ivywise.com. But I also highly recommend checking out Columbia's virtual or in-person information sessions and tours. So without further ado, hi, Eric, how are you? Hi, Tasha. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And as you said, just to recap, I'm a former admission officer at Columbia University in the city of New York, as they like to add, and assistant director of admission at the new school in lower Manhattan as well, which may come up later. Thanks so much for that introduction, Eric. Uh, I like that you added in the city of New York, and I am curious to hear more about that. So so I think just to start, um, I would love to hear just a general sense of what you think a typical Columbia University student is like. Can you describe them? Sure. So the Columbia typical admitted student is not typical at all in some ways, which is a little bit of a contradiction. But I think what I think of the Columbia student, the words that come to mind are both interested and interesting. So that coupling and that pairing really means that the student is highly motivated and has, you know, academic interests that are pretty cemented, but at the same time, they are flexible enough to learn from their peers, engage with the curriculum in unique ways and engage with the city in uh, similarly unique ways. So again, highly motivated, highly academic, but also a lot of personality and maybe a wide range of interests, or maybe they are also more hyper-focused in getting into the depth of one particular discipline or talent. I'd love to kind of take a a bird's eye view and zoom out a little bit. Can you describe Columbia kind of in, in nuts and bolts? So things like size, student body, types of academics, all of that? Sure. So, you know, folks out there listening probably at least know the name of Columbia, but do you really know what's behind the name when we pull back the curtain? So if we're just getting into the nuts and bolts, kind of some of the base knowledge, You know, the incoming class at Columbia is around 1,400 students. That's fluctuated from year to year, and it puts it kind of right in the center of the Ivy, Stanford, and MIT in terms of this great sweet spot. Um, In terms of the total undergraduate enrollment, which sits, you know, just around 8,100 students. Dartmouth is the smallest with around 4,500, and Cornell is the largest with about 15,500. So the other thing I like to add is that in terms of 
size land and campus, Columbia is the smallest of the Ivy League. And that really informs the closeness of the connections and I think the ability for students to form bonds and connections. All of the residence halls for first year students are housed in one part of South Campus. So you can literally see them all at one time. If you're scanning, you can see the student center if you were to stand you know, right as you go through the gates um, and at the center of Low Library, you can just make a 360 degree turn and see the majority of campus. And I think students need to think about what that means. You know, it's small, you're gonna see your friends as you're walking across parts of campus. And I think that that's a really important feature to think about in an academic experience that usually only hap happens, I think, at small liberal arts colleges, uh, but at a school of this size, it's a little unusual uh, that you might be concentrated in such a small area. Uh, the other thing to think about is that um, Columbia is positioned in a unique part of the city. So the Morningside Heights neighborhood, where I was a resident at 106th Street between uh, Broadway and Amsterdam once upon a time, is pretty residential. It's very picturesque. The campus is fairly insulated, but you have this unlimited access to the other parts of New York City. Um, you've got two train lines very close by. So if you just jump on the subway, you can be downtown, you can get to Columbus Circle, you know, you can get down to Soho. Um, and if you're on the east side, you know, you've got easy access to Brooklyn, some of the other boroughs. So there's a real opportunity to have both the insular campus and then also, again, this unlimited access to New York City. And yeah, if you think if we look at the student profile, I think uh, this is something that I like Columbia for because they're very transparent about what the incoming class looks like globally. So for the class of 2025 for the college and also for the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, we saw about 2,300 admitted students. That makes for a 3.9% admit rate and plummeting. I think, you know, we saw an uptick in early decision applicants and, you know, it's important to keep in mind that nearly 50% of students are receiving financial aid. Um, we've got 19% Pell eligible students. So there is a pretty wide breadth in terms of the diversity of the student body. Geographically, they're coming from 50 states. You've got just about 15 students that are truly international, meaning that they are uh, not for, you know, they're not American citizens, they're either dual citizens or would be classified as like they don't carry a US passport. And of course, naturally, the top represented states are New York, California, New Jersey, and Texas is on the rise. Thanks so much, Eric. That was a really great, uh, like you said, bird's eye view of, or snapshot of, of Columbia. And I think something that really stuck out to me that I wasn't really aware of as someone who did not attend or, or work at Columbia University is, is its, its physical size. So I did go to a small liberal arts college, as you mentioned, which are typically the kinds of places, the only kinds of places where you can see the whole campus from a particular location. So that's really uh, good to learn and important to learn, I think, because it's not what I think most people would assume about Columbia University because it is located in such a large city like New York City. So I wonder uh, if this is something that you came across often. Is is that sense of surprise around the the physical size? 
I think the the real difference is obviously you have a number of graduate schools that are also housed on the Columbia campus, but I do find that the southern portion of the campus is the most undergraduate centric. You have the uh, student center, you've got Barnard right across Broadway, which we'll probably talk a little bit more later, and you have the residential features of the campus and student life really concentrated on one quad. So I think one thing that's nice is you have College Walk and then you look and you see the libraries, you see the student center, you see the primary kind of made quad. And I think what students also are surprised to see is that there is green space. So you have this nice contrast between the true urban nature of New York City, and then also some of the more idyllic features of a campus that might be in a more pastoral setting. But you know, there is green space in New York um, and in the, in the middle of campus, which I think gives students you know, an idea of like, oh, I can still sit out on a quad and play frisbee or study when the weather's nice. And, you know, the New York City weather is also a lot more mild than people think, or that's what I found. And um, another element that I kind of like to highlight is Columbia feels quite different from the other New York schools. And I think that that's something that we'll get to the admissions process later. But you want to think about how this small physical campus and its position in New York City is gonna uniquely support your needs, maybe more from a social view than an academic view, but maybe from both. You know, I remember reading applicants and seeing that maybe they didn't understand the full difference between a school like Columbia and other New York City schools. So you have NYU, you have the new school, uh, to a lesser degree, you have Fordham um, up in the Bronx. So I think it's important to think again about why this uh, dual element of both a green campus and an insulated campus and the physical position in New York City is important. NYU students, you know, it's a much larger student population and it's truly urban where you will just see a series of buildings that are fully integrated into lower Manhattan and the way that you might only have an indication of which building is NYU and which building isn't is a beautiful purple flag hanging out there. Uh, the new school is similar but kind of occupies the West Village and Fordham does have the great beautiful campus but at the same time you know, you're a train ride away from getting into Manhattan. So it also has kind of a different feel. So Columbia is unique in that way in that it's again, kind of in New York City, but also has the insular campus. Amazing, thank you so much for, for kind of bringing it to, to the other New York City schools and kind of starting to, to contextualize that because I know that can be really important when you're looking at urban campuses uh, to make sure that you're interested in that university specifically and not just in the city uh, in general because if you're just interested in the city, you have lots of different options. Okay, but back to Columbia. Um, what is Columbia University the most known for? Well, I think if you asked any student or particularly any faculty member beyond the city, which I've described a bit, the core curriculum is one of the most central features to the academic experience at Columbia. And I think for some students, that's a big turn off. And for others, it's a real attraction. So there are very few schools that have as robust a core as Columbia does. 
And that means about a third of your classes are already going to be set out for you, irrespective of your major. And that's also included to a lesser degree in the School of Engineering. So I was just talking with a student recently who felt like actually as a student who wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to do, the core was a real appeal for her because it gave her some direction, but also some agency in selecting classes later on outside of the core curriculum or even within. So you've got these like great books and philosophy and more humanities and arts centric classes. But I think that the core curriculum has evolved based on the needs of you know, a student going out into the world after the university, but also has evolved based on student desire and need so that it not be, you know, you're reading only dead white men. <laughs> and so now you have Homer, but you also have Toni Morrison, you have Plato, but you also have Gandhi, you have Andy Warhol, and how does that inform our thinking? And so just as an example, you know, there's an arts humanities class, and this is pretty representative of the core. Classes are limited to 22 students, they're discussion based, and they also make extensive use of New York City. So you will have field trips to museums, particular historic buildings and monuments that might be relevant to the course of study. Um, <clears throat> so again, approximately a third of your courses will be kind of planned out in these not distributional requirements, which I think give students a lot more flexibility, but more like very heavily concentrated. And again, I don't like to think of it as rigid, but maybe I would go so far as to say that word, which again is either very appealing or if you look at a student who is going to Brown University with the open curriculum, it's a real contrast in that way. And so I think another thing that students really need to think critically about is whether or not the core is going to support their academic needs. And even for engineers, another thing that I like to mention is, you know, engineering students, even if you're in computer science or electrical engineering, you're going to take part of the core, which is much more humanities centric. And the argument from Columbia was this is going to make you a better engineer because you'll actually have other disciplines to pull from as you move forward. You're going to be able to think more deeply and critically about things beyond engineering and just sort of like the technical aspects of whether that's coding or, you know, other classes that are more heavily focused on technical aspects of engineering. And I found that really compelling about the Columbia academic experience because you can think more about what it is that you want to affect change in more deeply because you have a bit more context beyond just, again, the technical uh, proficiency that you would learn at other um, at other engineering schools. Great. And I'm so glad you brought up the core because I know that that's something that Columbia is certainly known for, but that either students are really excited about or are a lot less excited about. And certainly with any kind of academic program, uh, I think it's important for students to really ask themselves and, and uh, to really kind of take the different options into account. Um, what are some ways that a prospective student might kind of engage with Columbia and uh, the core program, for example, to kind of get a taste for it? Yeah, I mean, another thing that I failed to mention before that I think is really important is, you know, since, you know, the 40s and even earlier on, because you have this uh, 
shared language and shared experience, it allows for alumni and students to have some real kinship in terms of their experience. There was a real connection between alumni and current students or recent graduates because you know that you had this unified experience, which I think is actually really interesting and allows for folks to connect across generations. So that's one another kind of um, advantage of the core curriculum is just like the academic experience is one of the more central features of the to overall experience at Columbia, but ways for students to engage with the core. And I think this is really important to underscore as you're looking at not just Columbia, but all the other schools that you may potentially apply to as a prospective student. I think it's not just important to know courses and name drop, you know, and, and do kind of superficial research, but understanding again, why this particular combination of required courses is going to support your academic needs and goals. You may not have those fully formed, but at the same time, I think it's important that you're going to be taking literature, humanities, contemporary civilizations, a required university writing course, art humanities, music humanities, and the new, more newly formed frontiers of science. So again, you can notice that there's a real emphasis on the liberal arts and an emphasis on the humanities, but at the same time, it has been a bit retrofitted uh, to become more modern over the years. But getting into and really digging into the nature of what each of those disciplines is, I think is particularly important as you're researching the core and the curriculum as a whole. And I think that it does require a bit more attention and a bit more depth in terms of your research uh, than you may find at other schools because it is so deliberately constructed. So, so we've talked a lot about academics so far, but before we start talking about the application process, I would love to just spend a little bit of time talking about student life and extracurricular activities and, and you know, the city of New York, which we have already talked about a little bit. So, so what, what is unique about Columbia University's student life offerings? So you have your student clubs and organizations, you have your RA structure, you have your faculty who uh, sometimes live in the residence halls to provide a little bit closer connection between faculty and students. You've got this really wide range of student organizations. So if you're really interested in activism, if you're very interested in music, if you're an athlete, not at the you know varsity level, but more at the club level, all of those things are certainly embraced. You also have like outdoors opportunities. So while you're in the city, it's kind of fun to stretch your legs by getting upstate or getting into other areas where you can you know get out into nature you can ski if you're feeling really ambitious and you can take the train to get outside of the city really easily but i will say you know in uh as i was looking at student life i did find that you have a lot of the really familiar and common elements that you'd see with the exception of things like you know a student studying medicine or a student studying finance uh, or student may be interested in politics. And I think those pipelines are a little bit more heavily intact because you are in New York. And certainly students who are interested in the arts have a great advantage being positioned in New York City. Many of your faculty might be working artists in the industry. And I think that's something important to think about as you're looking at a school, not just for a transactional internship opportunity, but also from the lens of, you know, what am I doing outside of campus that I couldn't do at a more insular place that's in the woods, you know, and has that beautiful 
you know, pristine campus? How can I really engage with the city in innovative ways? And I know my students have done, you know, research alongside doctors, you know, at some of the premier hospitals and medical teaching universities in the world. And my students, again, in the arts or publishing or finance have really been able to connect with those folks very easily because of the geographic proximity. So you don't have to compete with the huge influx of students that come to New York City, pounding the pavement, looking for um, jobs in the summer. You know, you get that huge, you know, just breathes in students in the summer. And uh, Columbia students have a distinct advantage being able to uh, locate and participate in a lot of those opportunities year round. So I do think that's, again, something just to keep in mind, you know, the city really is, it's built into the name of the school very deliberately, and it's also built into the way that students are expected to learn and stretch and grow. So again, there's a real necessity to think about New York City and Manhattan and Hopefully you've visited because I think there's no real way to get a sense for it until you see it. But if you don't have the opportunity to see it, just know that people that live in New York think that New York is the center of the universe. And when I lived there, I had a little taste of that because New York is the center of the universe in some ways. I mean, if you talk about the city, then people know what you mean. You know, if you live within a 2000 mile radius, of New York City and you say the city, a lot of times people are going to know what you're talking about without you having to say New York. You know, as someone who does live in New York City, I have to agree with you there. (laughs) I sometimes have to remind myself that I don't live in the center of the universe. So another unique thing about Columbia is its kind of special partnership that it has with one of the seven sisters, the original seven sister female colleges, which is Barnard College. Eric, can you tell me a little bit more about that partnership and how it uh, lives on today? Okay, yeah. So, uh, you know, what we know about Barnard's history, or if you don't know, you'll know it now, is that it is one of the uh, original seven sister schools, and it actually uh, stands alone, which is not true of many of the women's colleges that were absorbed by their uh, brother, quote unquote, school. So uh, Harvard Radcliffe, you know, exists in a very different incarnation now. And some of them stand alone and have become co-ed. Barnard has elected to remain a women's college, which I think is, again, a very deliberate decision. One thing that's quite interesting to think about is that Columbia did not admit women as a consequence of Barnard still being across Broadway until 1983, which is just yesterday, if you're my age, but is also in the arc of the history of Columbia quite late. And I think one of the things that used to be sort of a a misperception about Barnard is it was like this stepchild or this backdoor into Columbia. And I really don't see that anymore with the Barnard women that I've sent to school. They're really deliberately looking for a women's education. I know this is a focus on Columbia, but I think it's important to give Barnard some, uh, some, (laughs) some love here for lack of a better phrase, because it is an amazing place for young women who want to have that, um, specific experience, the women that I look for and the young women that I look for who want a, a women's education to sort of fortify. You have women supporting women in a very unique way. And then you also have 
considerable access to the resources of Columbia University, and that relationship is really reciprocal. So for example, I know that uh, students at Columbia took a lot of their dance classes at Barnard, or they relied on the Barnard libraries, or they relied on supplemental coursework that wasn't available to students at Columbia. And again, similarly, Barnard women have uh, considerable access to the resources, courses, and student organizations that uh, Columbia offers. Thank you so much, Eric, for for taking the time to kind of go through the nuts and bolts and academics as well as student life and extracurriculars that uh, students should be thinking about if they're considering Columbia University as prospective students. Uh, but now it's it's for the for the juicy important stuff. Let's talk about the application process. What is Columbia looking for in an applicant? So this might save you some time in having to watch the hour or hour and 15 minute formal information session that Columbia offers online, which I still recommend, but at the same time, this is going to give you the Cliff's Notes. So what is Columbia looking for in applicants? I mean, there has to be this evaluation, this self-evaluation that you are a top student in the top segment of your class, irrespective of where you're coming from geographically. So, I mean, Columbia got 60,000 applicants this year for an incoming class, you know, of near 13 or 1400. So that is really highly selective. And while they may not say it in front of the room, there are some informal benchmarks that I think they're looking for. I mean, they will publicly publish that over 90% of the applicant pool was in the top 10% or higher of the academic class at your school. So it doesn't mean that you're going head to head with your colleagues or with your other students at your school, but I think you need to be really rigorously honest about have you maxed out the curriculum that's available to you? And essentially, have you done top work in those courses? Ultimately, students are not going to hold water if they're not really maxing out the curriculum, particularly if they have really robust offerings at an AP or an IB school or in the absence of APs and IBs, you know, the highest level courses that your school offers. So that's kind of getting you in the mix academically, right? There are students who will hit those informal benchmarks and then they're, you know, again, kind of what I call academically viable or they're in the mix academically. Then all of these other elements come into play, the sort of qualitative factors to uh, differentiate students who look very similar just based on the quantitative factors. One of the things that I like to note is there are some different supplemental questions and supplemental information that the school is soliciting. And I encourage you all to look at those so you can get a sense of what kind of student Columbia is looking for and do you really fit into that. It's not a mold, but they are looking for highly intellectual students and how do they evaluate that? Well, if you look at some of the supplemental essays, you're going to see one that includes the title of books, essays, poetry, stories, short stories, or plays that you've read outside of your academic courses. So this is the list. They also are asking about lists in the ways that you explore your interests in any publications, websites, journals, podcasts, lectures, museums, music, and other content with which you regularly engage. This is a really an unusual prompt, and these are segregated into two different questions. However, I think you see some similarities here. What is the intellectual curiosity that you carry outside of your school and outside of your required coursework? So this is something that I don't think students can invent. You know, if you don't have these things top of mind, and if you aren't really naturally 
curious in these ways, it's going to be really difficult to offer Columbia what it is that they're looking for. I always encourage students to look for breadth and depth in these and unconventional offerings. And so again, if you're not regularly engaging with academic content outside of your academic coursework, it's going to be really difficult. And I also say it's important to still be 17 or 18, but it's also important to think about the fact that you know, you may have taken that Coursera or edX or MIT OpenCourseWare class that you may be listening to some podcasts that are science based, humanities based, news based, you know, a little bit more hardcore intellectual heft is one of the pieces or language uh, or vocabulary that I like to use. And they're also going to ask about, you know, kind of the typical diverse and collaborative community and what you'll contribute and the classic why Columbia. But one of the things that I also like is they've got this quick, brief, 35 word or less thing, you know, that's what is what brings you joy. So there, there is an element of levity. I would just say students really need to flex their intellectual heft in the application and it needs to be sincere. And it's pretty easy on the other side to tell whether or not a student is pretty rigorously pursuing outside academic interests beyond what's simply required of them. Amazing. And thank you so much for running through those questions so so efficiently, but um, also so clearly. So just to recap, it looks like there are two list questions and um, four short answers, including that really, really short, what brings you joy question. And so all of those supplements coming together to, to give students an opportunity to kind of present themselves to, to the university beyond the numbers and in addition to their common application personal statement. Is that right, Eric? Yes, I also think it's important just to know again, in terms of real quick, uh, or really quickly to highlight some of the other elements of the application that may vary from school to school. So Columbia is actually the first Ivy League school to suspend testing and moving to a test optional policy permanently, which I think shows a commitment to inclusivity, to uh, evaluating students within the context of what's available to them and in the absence of testing. So I think that's a big thing to note. It was a pretty recent um, announcement. No demonstrated interest is considered as a formal factor, so you don't need to bother the admissions officer. You don't need to uh, visit them when they come to your high school. You don't need to necessarily watch all the videos, come to the information sessions. Those things are great, but they're not going to be considered as formal factors in the process. Columbia does offer admissions interviews conducted by alumni. These are also not a required piece of the application, so they will not be decisive in the admissions process, and you can't ask for them. They will be assigned after the point of application, and it can be a great way to get a bit of information through a different lens. I found that the alumni interviews usually just corroborated what we already knew about the student, but sometimes they could add value. They rarely ever hurt a student, and they always helped. This just about wraps up this second episode of season two, semester six of Just Admit It. Stay tuned for a new episode every other week throughout this spring. In the meantime, you can catch up on all of our previous episodes by visiting our podcast page and be sure to bookmark our knowledge base for additional help with navigating the complex and competitive admissions process. If there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the next semester, please email us at podcast at ivywise.com. Don't forget to follow us on socials for more resources on the higher ed landscape, and that's at follow Ivywise. 
on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Thank you so much, Eric, for being with us today and for talking about your expertise on Columbia University. Absolutely. Thank you, Tasha. From IvyWise, I'm your host, Tasha, and this has been Just Admit It. See you next time.